0: We now have our second message today by Mr. Art Williams, entitled Love, Grace, and Accountability. Thank you, Owen. We have a great future in front of us, and we're here um, celebrating that at the Feast of Tabernacles and the celebration of the millennium, what comes after the millennium, and the the great love that God is going to bestow upon his people, his nation, all people everywhere. But it began back in the garden, and that's where I want to start today, when man was made in the image and the likeness not just the image, the image and the likeness of God. The image is clearly in the fact that man is a personal, rational, and a moral being. The difference is that God is finite and man, God is infinite and man is finite. Man possesses the elements of personality similar to God in thinking, in feeling, and the ability to have a will. And that's all perceived out of reading the chapters in the early early chapters in Genesis. And you can see where man thinks, man feels, and man has a will. In the moral nature we can find that it is attested to throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible is a unity of the purpose of God. God. Man is created in God's image and was placed in sovereignty over the whole earth and given a crown of glory, honor, and dominion over it, back in Genesis but he was also subject to God in obedience to God. And it was the divine intention that man was to have fellowship in an interpersonal relationship with God through obedience. Of course that was broken. And God knew that the testing began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. But nonetheless He has a program and a goal that is going to restore sinning man to his likeness, fellowship, and and have dominion over the earth. And Jesus is going to bring this about. In the meantime, we wait with patience, assurance of God's complete victory and the implementation of his purpose for all of mankind. We're in a time period, a time of testing in respect to obedience to him and to some specific revelations of the will of God. Our conduct, our actions, displaying our responsibility through obedience during this time is all part of it and man will be reconciled to God in only one way, and that is through God's grace and through the work of Jesus Christ our Savior. And so going to the Garden of Eden, it's really interesting, because in the Garden, there Eve is in the Garden, and it must have been kind of a curious event. But can you imagine if you're in your Garden, or maybe walking a trail, and you're taking in the flowers and you're looking over here and all of a sudden something says to you, great afternoon, isn't it? How you doing today? And you turn around and you look and you don't see anybody. And you look again and you see this curled up creature, looks like a snake around a tree, is looking at you and you, look at, you think snakes can't, snakes can't talk, can't be him. Well, you got to believe your lying eyes or you got to listen to me? And so she looks back to him, and she's fascinated. And Who wouldn't be fascinated? Put it in maybe a little more realistic terms. If you're out and you see a deer in your front yard, and you go out and he starts talking to you, would you be a little bit enthralled and fascinated? You're going to probably talk back with him, aren't you? Where'd you come from? How is it you can talk? And so she was fascinated with him, and of course he sneaks in the lies. And that began the testing And there's two folds of testing. There was a testing in the Old Testament, and there's testing in the New Testament, and they have different purposes. The testing going on now is to select people to be part of the kingdom of God when it is established on earth. And right now, we are in training to develop and to further our understanding. And we do that by studying in the Old Testament and the New Testament, coupled with what's going on in our individual lives this day, in the things that we experience as we go through life. And life isn't easy. Life is getting more difficult and more difficult. In Romans 1, and I'm not going to go to the scripture, Paul writes that man doesn't want, doesn't want to retain God in his knowledge, and they are willingly rejecting him and going against them. And we see that throughout the Old Testament with Israel and even other personages throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was about the nation. Today, it's about the individual. Individuals that God will use to establish his government, his kingdom here on earth. He tells us in Romans 12, verse 2, be not conformed to this world. And I've used this scripture, I think, three times in my last three messages. Be not conformed to this world, but ye, be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. I want to this time focus in on that word prove. Because what do you have to do to prove? It just doesn't happen. If it's an instruction that's given implicitly in the instruction book, you don't have to do much evaluation. It says, thou shall do or thou shall not. It's pretty clear. There are two wills involved here, a definitive will and an undefined will. And in your personal life and the decisions that you make, it is an undefined will. And that's where the proving comes in. Proving what is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. It requires inspection. It requires evaluation, it requires observation, it requires analysis, it also requires trial and error. Trial and error. Experience. And then to come to understand the results, success or failure. And Christ is always there to forgive you when you don't get it right everything you try to prove, everything you evaluate is not going to always be a success. And it's really sorrowful today, especially for our young people because they don't realize it because they're so young and they're new to the society. But it wasn't always, life was not always this difficult. It's just that because of man's not willing to retain God in his knowledge, we have elements in our society today that make decision-making much more risky. And the, the ability to make a decision and have it come out favorably over the long term when you make decisions at age 20 that are, such as careers and marriage and going to have them come out successfully and happily is becoming more and more difficult. We read in the news where someone who's grown up with a person and is their friend and one day he decides he wants the car that his buddy has so he kills him. And they have been friends for 18 years. They grew up together. That's an illustration of the complexity and the evil that is in our life. Lifelong impacts from the decisions that we make. Paul goes on in Corinthians 1, chapter 9, 24, and 25, and he addresses the same thing. Know you not that they that run a race, run in a race, run all, but one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain. He's making an analogy here to the Christian life and your Christian development and the things that you're striving to do. He says in the next verse, And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now, Now they, being those in the world, do it to obtain a corrupt crown, but we, an incorruptible crown, And just like proving, striving for mastery doesn't happen instantly. It takes time, it takes learning, it takes practice, and it takes instruction. And the biggest risk you have are other people. Because they say one thing one day, and they do something else the next. And if you want to test anything, try and test your friends. Young people, Take a small amount of money if somebody needs some and lend it to them if they need some and, and tell them, I need it back on Friday and see if they return it to you on Friday if they say they will. See if they keep their word. You can do that little word test in many different ways. You don't have to use money, but it seems to be the most valuable in our society. So trying and testing and we can learn about people. And if we have the desire and the motivation to become perfect, even if we fall down and even if we fail, we can get back up and continue trying, learning, proving, and striving because he will forgive us because that's what we want. He looks at our heart. Paul continues in Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I count it not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forth unto those things that are before it. In other words, he doesn't think that he's already made it into the kingdom of God. I count not myself to apprehend it. I'm not already in the kingdom of God. I've got more to do, more to learn. Shortly before his death, Paul says, he is assured, he is confident that he's going to be in the kingdom. But for most of us here today, We've got a ways ahead of us because the Lord's going to say to us in Matthew 25, verse 23, Well done, good and faithful servant, for you have been faithful over a few things. A few things, not everything. Thank God that is true. If we had to be perfect beings, we're in trouble. And he goes on to say, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So it's nice to know we don't have to be perfect but that is not an excuse to lack motivation and turn our hearts and minds away from what he wants us to be doing and set on a platitude of confidence saying we have it made. Part of our ability to do that is our own identity and by our own identity I'm not talking nationally, I'm not talking racially I'm talking psychologically. Who do we think we are? This identity or our attitude about ourselves either enhances or in, impedes our ability to grow spiritually. There an example in Luke, Jesus gives an example of two men. Luke 18, 10 through 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray. and One was a Pharisee and the other was a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not as other men. These extortioners, these unjust adulterers, or even as this publican over here. I fast twice a week and I give my tithes every week. I stand firm at who and what I am. Publican standing afar off would not lift up his eyes unto heaven so much, and he smote his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For the other exalted himself and shall be abased. And he that humbles himself shall be exalted. When you're humble, you can be modified. You can be, like clay, you can be molded into what he wants you to be. When you have your own high-minded heart, Hard hearted attitudes. You won't allow him to mold you. These two men, in making the decisions in their life, not only here in this example, but throughout the rest of their life, will make totally different decisions because of the priorities that they have, because of who they think they are. The first have priorities that are founded in his personal goals and objectives and his self-esteem and his self-importance. They're not, and they're based upon his own feelings, desire of honor, power, and prestige in the eyes of other people. The expectation for glory, respect, and, be, and also being in a position to line their pockets with ill-gotten gains. The one that recognizes his sins, recognizes his shortcomings, and recognizes that he needs God. He needs God's insight, understanding, and help, support, and guidance. And it requires humility. And humility doesn't mean laying down on the floor and letting everybody walk over you either. Stand up for who you are and what you are. In Acts 7, 56 and 57, we see another example of people. This was at the stoning of Stephen. 56, verse 56, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. I don't want to hear it. And they ran upon him and stoned him. They stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear it, even though it was the truth. And unfortunately, this happens today. There are people that get up and exit church services because they don't like to hear the teachings, even when they're teachings of Jesus. You can read a a teaching from Jesus, and I've seen it happen. A direct quote, and somebody gets all hard-hearted about it. And you really have to wonder, where is their heart they say that they're Christians and they accept Jesus and when they don't like something Jesus teaches they turn around and get huffy and refuse to listen and they disagree with it because that's what they want to do so who we think we are our identity is established by where you stand with him who you think you are what you think establishes your identity with him? Do you have your own form of godliness or is godliness established by his criteria in his instruction book? We're going to see in a little bit here some criticisms of some, some Christians uh, by God here in a little bit because you ha- having a form of godliness, you know, a lot of people attend church every week but they do so for reasons that are not entirely pure in the eyes of God. People make God in their own image and they elevate their own attitudes, their own beliefs, their own likes and dislikes and interests and happiness up to the same level that Jesus teaches. (coughs) Excuse me. All these attitudes come together to establish how well we spiritually follow the instructions of Jesus. Do we look at ourselves in the mirror? Do we ask for his opinion? Not because we want him to slam us down on the ground and say, you you sinning bunch of dirt. He's not going to act with you that way. You're his son and he loves you because you believe in him and who you are. And even if we make the worst, of, the worst mistakes, He still loves you. He'll pick you up, dust you off, and take care of you. Human weaknesses don't change. They're today, they're the same as they were 5,000 years ago. Temptations, carnality, lust, evil, deceit, lying, robbery, extortion, they're the same today as they were 5,000, 4,000 years ago. The only difference is the influences whereby we are pulled into those weaknesses and how they manifest themselves how do they candy coat themselves how do they trick us how do they present themselves the methodologies are different but the weaknesses are all the same therefore it is possible that we can learn something from the letters to the seven churches and that they are more than just a historical progression to Ephesus I'm just going to go briefly. I'm not going to turn to the scriptures. I'm just going to go through the corrections that are offered to the churches. In Ephesus, he says, they lost their first love and their first works. Which is interesting because Jesus in Matthew 24 says, because of iniquity, the love of many will be lost. When you face a lot of iniquity, you begin to want to fight back. And when you fight back, you put your eyes on the physical, not on Jesus. Here, Ephesus lost their first love and their first works. And i thinking back to my first love. It was Bible study, prayer, and I was excited. I remember after services one Sabbath, I went home and I started a Bible study, something of what I heard, and I stayed up all Saturday night. Sunday morning at 7 o'clock, I went out and got breakfast. I came back, finished up my Bible study at 10 o'clock in the morning and then went to bed. And then I woke up 6 o'clock that night and couldn't get to sleep and had to go to work Monday morning. But that's, that's what a first love and first works do with the excitement, with the dedication, and the enthusiasm. And I got to know the hunger and the thirst. The second criticism of Ephesus is a doctrine of the Nicolaitans. and it's, you can get different opinions on this. Generally, it's, it's classified as living licentiously and promiscuity. Another uh, explanation of it is it is creating a union with the world and spiritual unchastity. And I suspect I kinda like that definition of it because it's not narrowed down into just one aspect of life. Creating a union with the world, even though you're claiming to be Christ. Moving on to Pergamus, they also had the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, and they also had the doctrine of Balaam, which was a stumbling block before the people. And That's interesting because Balaam couldn't curse Israel. So what he did is he got the women, I think it was a Moab, to come in and intermix with the men so the men would fall in love with them and marry them and thereby be drawn away from God. And that is an example of a stumbling block. And I spent a goodly number of years of my life, about 26 of them up in Chicago, and just about everybody, actually everybody I knew that married outside of the church left the church. And most of them also got divorced. So that puts, as a single person, you know, it, I went through the whole cycle, just, just an interlude here. I went through the whole cycle. Growing up as a child, I wanted to marry in the church. Then I got in the church, and one of the... One of the very early on experiences that I had was we went to the singles activity and I had two girls with me. Not seven, Reggie, two. <laughs> and on the way back, we thought it was getting in the evening, we thought we'd stop and get something to eat. And the one gal says, I'm going to order the most expensive thing on the menu. Well, thanks a lot for the consideration. You know, I mean, that was a total turnoff to me. Total turnoff. So then I dated around in the church and I found out there's so few girls here. I practically have to fight my way in to talk to them because there's 15 guys and only 3 girls. And the one girl that I really liked and her dad recognized it. She he calls me to side one day out her house. He says, "You know, Vicki's just like her mom. As long as she has guys asking her out and interested in her, she won't get serious over anybody. She'll turn them all down. Terrific. (laughs) So I graduated from college and I moved an hour and a half away. So all the guys in that church area were still there. And there I am, an hour and a half away. Didn't do much for my Ability to be in the in the mix, but anyway, I wasn't planning to go here, but I will. Uh, I, I I heard that she was going to go to the feast, and there's one guy lived only two miles from her, and her girlfriend, who I was pretty good friends with, told me, "Hey, Art, Tom's going to ask her to marry him at the feast this year." so I'm like hmm the last me and I wrote her a letter I wrote her a letter I mailed it I bared my heart my soul to her Tom asked and she told him no her girlfriend art she's waiting for you to call you said you'd call in your letter she's waiting for you to call one week went by two weeks go by I went to call her and I couldn't, I got this big knot in my stomach. Because what her dad told me, I felt she was doing the same thing all over again. She said no to Tom, not because she loved me, but she had somebody chasing her again. If she really loved me, I wouldn't had to write the letter, right? So she's doing the same thing all over again. But there was another. There was another factor that came about, and I, I hope she's not listening to this because she's got. To <laughs> <laughs> but the 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 thing that really uh, was the clincher for me was that she didn't drive. Her mom didn't drive, and she didn't drive. And I, you know, love causes you to do things emotionally that you normally logically wouldn't do. And I thought to myself, if she doesn't drive, that means after we have kids, who's going to take the kids to the doctor's appointments and dentist appointments? For the next 18 years after we have kids, it's going to be on my back. And can can I endure 18 years? Or is the love going to fade? Is the love going to fade? Is that burden taking her even shopping? Is that burden going to become too much for me? I thought it would. I thought it would. And I thought it would be better for her because where she lived, all of her relatives lived right around her. And the guy that asked her to marry her before lived only two miles away. So she has support. Has to take the kids to a doctor's appointment. She can get her relatives to help out. Being an hour and a half away from where all the relatives were, the burden would be on me. And whether I could make a successful relationship out of that, I didn't think I could. And I didn't date again for three and a half years afterwards. And when I did date, I never found another person in my life that I loved. She was the girl of my dreams up here since I was a young person and I never found her again. So anyway, outside of that, we go into fire and tire, and we have Jezebel, the seduction of the church. Now, whether this, whether Jezebel is a is a, is a, a reality or a perhaps a, a, an a, an illustration to religion that is tainted, I don't know. And also in Thyatira was things offered to idols, which goes to the human consciousness. Condemning yourself by your conscience because you know what's right. but You know what's wrong, but you're doing the wrong anyway. And that goes to the character value. You know. There are a lot, of, a lot of emotional things that because of who we are, we don't have the ability to deal with. Sometimes we need professional help. In Sardis, they're spiritually dead. That's like Going through the motions of claiming you're a Christian but not living it, you know. Go to church every week because your friends are there. You go to church because it's fun, because they have a basketball league and a baseball league. In Laodicea, probably the most risky to us. They're neither hot nor cold. Again, they're like Sardis. They're going through the motions. He doesn't say they're spiritually dead. But, you know, everything's easy. We go through the motions. Every, Every weekend I go to church. But they are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Bingo, there you go. Physical possessions. I am therefore blessed, the prosperity doctrine. I'm blessed with all of these physical I have to be good. Otherwise God would not have given me them. No. Don't mistake grace for approval. The minute you say, I have need of nothing you are detached from the evaluation of Jesus Christ. You're not focused on what his teachings are. Jesus says what our relationship should be with him. In John 17, 11, he says, And now I am no more in the world, but these these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them through your own name, whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. And continuing, and so he says we are in the world. In John 17:14, he goes on. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Those two scriptures are important. It tells us we are in the world, but we are not of the world. In John 17:17, 17, 17, he continues, Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. That is what separates us from the world. In the world, but not part of the world, because we don't do what the world does, when the world does it, how they do it, and why they do it. Continuing in verse 19 of John 17, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. He goes on in John 18:36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here, not from this world. And he goes on in 1 Peter 2.9, and I think Matthew referenced this scripture the other day. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the congregation of the church, regardless what nation you are in, Kenya, Sumatra, Russia, China, Indonesia, it doesn't matter. You're all part of the holy nation of Jesus Christ. There's a minister in one of the large churches. He has a circuit that he goes through. And he goes up through Estonia, got down into Romania. I can't even remember all the places he goes. But some of those places I've never even heard of. I mean, if you go on the internet and do a thing that you search for the nations of the world, you have all kinds of countries. They're everywhere with weird names, small names very small places. In Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. All those situations that are human, and he only used Jew and Greek as an example because that's who he was dealing with. He didn't deal with South America, North America, Indonesia, Burma. A holy nation. How does a holy nation contaminate itself? By getting to be part of the world. By doing what the world does, how the world does it, why the world does it, when the world does it, and how the world does it. That's how a holy nation becomes impure. Some of the teachings in Christ, and I've seen people walk out of services on over my 52 years at the Feast of Tabernacles, and not only at the Feast of Tabernacles have they walked out, but at weekly services. He that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life, here's the key phrase, in this world shall keep it, Unto eternal life. in Matthew 539, Jesus says, "But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him, the other also. The mission of the church found in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. There is the international aspect of the church. International. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And as he... as he identified earlier, it doesn't matter what your physical situation is, it doesn't matter what your sex is, male or female, it doesn't matter what country you're in, you can be a Christian under the dictatorship of North Korea, you can be a Christian in the quote Republic of Russia which is an oxymoron or you can be free in the United States. But the time is coming and Jesus states this that they will hate you will be hated you being Christians will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And you can rest assured, there go your rights out the window. And you may very well find that you are not only not having any rights, but you've been rounded up and thrown in a prison camp if you weren't killed. So don't set your heart and mind that this thing is going to get any better. At some point in time, we better adjust our relationship with Jesus Christ in our faith to be strengthened so that when these things have come upon us we can actually and this happened to me recently both myself and another person actually could rejoice because when you heard the negative news you said yes it's a step closer dancing in the streets why because it's a step closer you can see it coming and all of this mess down here is going to be cleared up and cleared away Jesus, it's recorded by Luke in chapter 24 verses 46 and 47 thus is it written and thus is it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem it began and in Jerusalem it's going to end. And this nation, this mission rather, has to do with calling individuals and equipping them so they can be in the kingdom of God. The Old Testament was written for our example and the New Testament for instruction. And there are parallels throughout uh, both of those. Some of the things that ancient Israel suffered as a nation, we can draw a parallel to for individuals. And the Old Testament is is there is so much there. You go from, you know, we mentioned Adam and Eve in the garden. But, but then you, you go through all of Jacob and Isaac, and you go into Moses, and then you go into the judges, and Joshua and Deborah, which people don't even think too much about Deborah being the judge because he couldn't find any men that had any guts to stand up to be a leader. So he went to Deborah. And then you go to the book of Ruth and Boaz, who had Jesse, who was the father of David. And David, who was the ruler of the king, the kingdom of Israel. You know, it's really, and then you can study the, the life of David. <clears throat> Stressful. Ancient Israel came out of the exodus, and they had it made, but they didn't like it. wasn't easy street in 1st Samuel 8 5 and said unto him behold you speaking to Samuel the elders of Israel said behold you are old and your sons walk not in your ways now make us a king to judge us like all the nations continuing in verse 20 he says they say that we also may be like all the nations and that our King may judge us our King may judge us not God our King may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles nothing is being more worldly and in the world than wanting a government that will judge you a government that says you have to go out and fight for it and die for it and then they give you a medal and they make glorious speeches for you when in fact God decided on the very first day of the war who was going to win it and what they were going to go through before it was all ended. A man thinks he's done such a great and wonderful thing when he didn't do anything. Made a fool of himself is what he did because when God would fight his battles for him back and forth First Samuel 8, they rejected him. They didn't even have to have any casualties. And Psalm two verses one through nine talks about the kings of the earth. Why do the heathens rage and the people imagine a vain thing: the kings of the earth, and the word "kings" doesn't have to literally mean kings. it can mean presidents or prime ministers, any ruler of this earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing saying let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us he that sits in the heavens shall laugh at them he that sits in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall have them in derision then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure In Daniel 2, 19 and 20, Daniel says, let's go down to, oh, let's start in 19. Then was the secret revealed. This is where Daniel is getting ready to reveal Nebuchadnezzar's dream to him. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons, right there is significant. He changes the times. You know, one of the events that just happened that Ken alluded to is the virus. This virus could go on in two ways. It's really interesting, in 2019 the virus started in like October or November or so of 2019. I don't know how many of you knew it or not, but in 1919 there was a pandemic right in the middle of World War I. It lasted for two and a half years and seven million people died. I don't know if that's significant or not. But the changing of times and the seasons, something like that is really interesting because we're going to read later on. Well, maybe we won't read that. Maybe we don't have time. Uh, he says to Jacob, I will strike you down with an incurable bruise. Incurable. You know what's in this nation right now is Incurable. We're still trying to get a vaccine for it. So the question is where it goes from here. I'm not saying this is the end time or anything like that. What I'm trying to illustrate is that something as little and as trivial as that can change the picture on the horizon. It doesn't have to be some great big armed conflict. Continuing, he changes the times and the season. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that no understanding. He can remove presidents or set up presidents. Like that. It doesn't matter who you vote for. It doesn't matter who you put in. They had a big debate back during the Civil War. One of the newspaper reported on it because they asked, president of the confederacy Jeff Davis whose side is God on Jeff Davis said our side and went to Lincoln asking the same question Lincoln said our side but Lincoln had a little bit more wisdom he said if I can remember what he said we one of us may be right but both of us can't be wrong. But it's an observation that somebody made later on was the judgment that came down in the nation was on both sides, and it was a terrible war. And someday we may get visibility if, if anybody was right on that. He removes kings and he sets up kings. His choice, when he wants to do it, and how he wants to do it. Psalm 37, 8 through 16: Cease from anger and forget; forsake wrath; fret not yourself in any wise to, to do evil. For evil doers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord shall inherit the earth verse 11 the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace They delight themselves in abundance of peace if I have time we're going to get to a description on that delight the wicked plot against the just and gnash their teeth upon him the Lord shall laugh at him and seeing that his day is coming the wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy, and to slay such as be of upright con- conversation. The sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. In Jeremiah 30, verse 3, he says, and he's speaking about Israel and Judah here, physically. For lo, the days come, says the Lord, when I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers. This is the regathering of Israel at the time of the end. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. And one of the significant things here is he changes the name from Israel. He goes from Israel to Jacob. I think it was Reggie or somebody that mentioned the significance of that. Uh, earlier on in the feast and he says physically and we are not going to have to worry about some of this because we're going to be up and see a glass are we able to watch it he says in verse 11 of Jeremiah 30 I am with you says the Lord to save you though I make a full end of the nations, those are Gentile nations, Whether I, where, where I have scattered you, yet will I, make a, I will not make a full end of you, but I will correct you in measure and will not leave you altogether unpunished. Thus says the Lord in verse 12, your bruise is incurable and your wound is grievous. That's really curious. Your wound is incurable. There is none to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. Who are your lovers? Your trade partners? Your military allies? you are talking nationally here. They will all leave you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities because your sins were increased. Why cry for your affliction? Your sorrow sorrow is incurable for the multitude of your iniquities. Because your sins were increased, I have done these things unto you. That probably fits into our society very well. It seems like being as you get older, you get to see the progression happening. Um, you see what it was in the 1960s and you see what it was now or what it is now in 2020. But all is not lost because we are going to be part of the team that God is putting together to rule and bring peace, harmony, and remove the sorrows from this world The resurrection will come. You'll gather the, the dead and those that are alive. They'll go up on the sea of glass. The wedding feast will take place there. They will be given their reward. they will know their assignments, and they will, up, they will mount up on their horses and follow Christ down. They'll fight the Battle of Jerusalem, the Battle of Armageddon, the Battle of Basra. and I'm sure there's going to be other battles and other hot spots around the world that are going to have to be taken care of. But on the positive side, we come down and we establish the kingdom of God here on earth. And to Jacob and Israel and and Judah, I should say Israel and Judah, not Jacob, Jeremiah 31, 1 through 9. At that same time, the Lord says, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord. The people that were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness. Have I drawn you? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What he wants is the wicked to come and understand the correct way to live. And that's not done by twisting their arm in, and torturing them and getting them to say yes. Man's heart is not changed against his will, man's mind is not changed by torture. He'll say yes to stop the torture. God wants a sincere change. And he makes that plan available to us right now. And he makes it available to everybody in the world. A man's attitude is to reject a lot of it. Continuing in verse 4, Again I will build you, speaking to Israel and Judah. Again I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with tabrets, And thou shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. You shall yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria and planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. There shall be a day that the watchmen upon the mount of Ephraim shall cry, Arise you and let's go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chiefs of the nations, Publish your praise, praise you and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth. And with them, the blind and the lame and the woman with child and her travail with child together. A great company shall return. They shall come weeping and with supplications and I will leave them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of the water in a straight way wherein they shall not stumble for I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. And we are going to have a part in all of this. Continuing in verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, O you nations, and declare it in the isles afar off. He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the land from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the heights of Zion and f- shall flow together in the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for all the young of the flocks and of the herd. Their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in dance, both young men and old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy and comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow.